I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Fewer people are convinced by the story each day as they begin to see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. The time for allowing them to make us feel like strangers in our own country is over. We are Americans. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. This is the end game. It's Thursday, February 3rd, 2022, the 379th day of dystopia. And I want to start out today with one of the most blistering speeches I've ever heard from the House floor. This is Madison Cawthorn from North Carolina. And the speaker, um, really happy now to um, uh, yield to the gentleman from North Carolina, the youngest member of Congress. Maybe ever. Is it ever? It's close. It's close. Uh, good, my good friend, uh, Mr. Cawthorn. Well, I thank Mike Johnson, the great conservative champion we have here. Uh, Madam Speaker, the sons and daughters of America are not foot soldiers for your party's inept geriatric despot. They are not expendable pawns to be dispatched at the whims of an idiot, tossed carelessly around the world to godforsaken caves and bloody sandboxes. They are Americans, worthy of honor, worthy of honor and dignity. The only salute from them Joe Biden deserves involves one finger. American blood is not the currency of the world. It cannot be borrowed, exchanged, or lent to any man or any nation. Its worth is immeasurable. American patriots in uniform all signed a blank check to their nation. And already under this administration in Afghanistan, Joe Biden cashed it for 13 patriots through his reckless incompetence. The path to American national security does not lie in American international interventionism. It lies in securing our southern border, not the Russia-Ukraine border. Our greatness is forged in our resistance to interference. The war lobby has no ally in the America First Republicans. We will preserve our strength through nationalism. We will champion America first today and America first forever. We earned our greatness. Let others earn theirs. And if Joe Biden hasn't prostituted our preeminence to the military-industrial complex by the time Donald Trump returns... We will preserve this great city on a hill for the descendants of our grandchildren. Thank you. Now, that's about as hard as you can throw down. I'm honestly very impressed. The rhetoric is obviously turned up a few notches right there. But that is a reflection of how truly inept and incompetent and powerless the fake president now is. This is actually following up on an op-ed that Madison Cawthorn wrote yesterday for Revolver. And I'm going to share that with you. The headline in Revolver, Madison Cawthorn reveals regime's January 6th plot to crush MAGA and remove him from office. The left is trying to block Donald Trump from appearing on the ballot in 2024, and their path to victory begins or ends with me. The governing class is running in sheer panic. The Biden regime is crashing down. The numbers are in. The establishment is in shock at how disastrous 12 months in office have been for their geriatric savior. The ground is ripe for a Donald Trump reemergence in 2024. But if you thought the 2020 election was hijacked, and it was, you're going to hate the sequel. To preserve their unearned dominance and keep the plebeians from toppling their regime, the left is pivoted to lawfare in an unprecedented attempt to subvert democracy. The left knows that if the upcoming 2022 midterms are fair, it will be a cataclysmic indictment of the Washington swamp and our governing elites. If the 2024 presidential election is above board, it will end in the complete toppling of the ruling class. Their utopian dream of open borders, riots, inflation, masks, and CRT is about to be upended by Walmart shoppers clinging to their guns and religion. The men and women whom Washington elites forgot, but Donald Trump remembered. But that will only happen if the next two elections are fair. And the left has a plan to prevent that, more sinister than any of the ballot harvesting and midnight vote dumps from 2020. This time, their plan is to simply ban the political opposition entirely, like a sham election in Stalin's Russia. 
11 voters in North Carolina, propped up by leftist donors, have filed a challenge to my 2022 House candidacy, alleging that an obscure section of the 14th Amendment bars me from holding public office because I engaged in an insurrection. My insurrection was speaking at a rally in front of the White House, questioning the results of the 2020 election. If these activists succeed in disqualifying me, the precedent is set. The autocratic left will topple MAGA supporters one by one with their own free speech, the only justification needed to label us insurrectionists. Supporters of President Trump and eventually President Trump himself will be barred from office. The bar will be lowered until the only Republicans eligible to hold office under this perversion of democracy have last names like Cheney or Kinzinger. The ruling class will have succeeded. The worst form of oligarchy will be achieved. This is the real attempt to subvert democracy. There is no subversion greater than stripping the public of the right to even cast a vote for their preferred candidate. But when the left's media acolytes bother reporting on this effort at all, it's to support it. You will not hear any accusations about subverting democracy pointed at anyone complicit in this twisted legal putsch. To them, the only democracy subversion is by those of us who honored our oaths to defend the Constitution by objecting to the 2020 election. And I am 100% on board with that. Every single person holding political office who has not worked to fix 2020 and did not object to the overwhelming evidence of fraud in the 2020 election has violated their oath to the Constitution, to this country, and to the people they serve. To the extent that they did this knowingly and on behalf of foreign and global interests, they may damn well have committed treason. The left and its corrupt ruling class allies from both parties claim to have won the political debate, when in reality they prevent the debate from being held at all. There was no debate about the political priorities of Donald Trump. There were only the relentless battle cries of obstruct, object, and impeach. They couldn't debate, so they sought to depose. Now, even with a Democrat in the White House again, the game has not changed. Democrats will keep their hold on power, not by winning over the public, but by barring any real alternative from appearing on the ballot in the first place. The attack on my candidacy is the canary in the coal mine, the first blow in an all-out offensive against two and a half centuries of American democracy. But stunningly, most Republicans are not paying attention. Their ignorance is no defense, though. They will be next. The right loses when it tries to sit at the table and play by the same rules that governed Washington politics decades ago. While we've been shuffling cards, the other side has flipped over the table and rewritten the rulebook. Even that metaphor falls short, though. For the left, politics is no game at all. It is a species of warfare, and the left believes in total war. The left justifies their conduct by regarding themselves as the sole guardians of democracy. But for the left, democracy doesn't mean free speech, political pluralism, or fair elections. Democracy is just a rubber stamp placed upon their elitist vision of an America where they are permanently in power. To know their vision is to know their plan. To them, the battle is no longer Republican versus Democrat. It's anointed elites versus, in their eyes, insurrectionists. During Donald Trump's presidency, the FBI and the Justice Department targeted both him and his supporters elected to public office. When Peter Strzok texted his illicit lover, we'll stop him, he was simply speaking the hidden ideology of the entire senior bureaucracy. In 2016, they used the phony Steele dossier to spy on the Trump campaign. Today, they use January 6th to justify the same tactics aimed at every vocal Trump supporter nationwide. The deep state feels the birth pangs of another MAGA wave. They know it's coming. And as it grows closer, their work to shut down Trump and his supporters will grow even more frenzied. The January 6th prisoners still held in the D.C. gulags with their basic rights stripped away will become a nationwide template. A permanent war on nationwide seditionists will justify more and more violations of due process and ever more outlandish charges against designated foes. No patriot is safe. MAGA fighters in Congress are in the way and we are loud, so they come for us first. But you're next. Pay attention. And man, I wasn't sure how I felt about Madison Cawthorn because he was a little uh, weak and maybe a little in over his head in the aftermath of that stolen election, but he is speaking the right language now. 
This is the case that all Republicans should be delivering. And so few of them are. And those are the ones to keep an eye on. Today, Politico published a unintentionally hilarious article. The headline is Democrats with a dirty secret. They watch Fox. The subheadline New data shows the conservative outlet has plenty of left-leaning viewers. Turns out everyone likes to be entertained. And yes, that's all it is. They watch Fox because it's so entertaining, whereas MSNBC and CNN are hard news. This is Jack Schaefer writing for Politico. Pity the poor Fox News Channel viewer. Caricatured in the press as ivermectin swallowing, knuckle dragging, no nothings, typecast by liberal politicians as addicted to the conservative echo chamber, and dismissed by the Twitter cognoscenti as stump stupid dupes of Trump. Fox News devotees also serve as a reliable punchline for stand up comedians, unfit for polite company and unqualified for political discourse. And that is actually a pretty good summation of the elite position on anyone who doesn't repeat the slogans of the central narrative. Very poorly written because he's trying to be fancy and is not good enough. But, you know, it is what it is. But if you peel off the cheap mask the press and politicians have pasted onto Fox viewers' faces, you find that they're not so retrograde and ridiculous as they're made out to be. You might even know some of them or be one yourself. Everybody knows Fox News draws Republicans the way mashed potatoes attracts gravy. Ooh. But new viewership data from Nielsen MRI Fusion, written up in The Wrap, Forbes, The Hill, and elsewhere, shows that the conservative outlet's audience includes oodles of self-described younger Democrats. In October, The Wrap reports, Tucker Carlson's primetime show was the top-rated news show among Democrats between 25 and 54. In total day viewership, Fox News grabbed 42% of Democrats aged 25 to 54, CNN nabbed 33%, and MSNBC got 25%. The Wrap's Lindsay Ellifson wrote, Tucker Carlson Tonight, Hannity, and The Five ranked in the top four cable news programs with Democrats in the total viewer category. Fox News also pulls in independence. The Nielsen data says that 58% of younger independents watch Fox during total day hours, while only 25% tune into CNN and just 18% choose MSNBC. If you have relied exclusively on centrist and liberal media for the past two decades, during which Fox has been the number one news channel, you have been browbeaten to the position that Fox dominance was made possible because its viewers are slow-witted ditto heads led by unscrupulous right-wing broadcasters who are eager to lap up conservative propaganda. These Nielsen results demand an explanation. Obviously, some of these Democrats and independents are hate-watching Carlson or dialing up Hannity for a good laugh. But these numbers can't be erased with such limited excuses. Better than CNN and MSNBC combined, Fox knows how to make zesty television. Take the career of Tucker Carlson, for example, a bright, charismatic guy. He failed to make a splash at CNN at the beginning of the century when he co-hosted Crossfire. Then his show struck out at MSNBC. Not until he landed at Fox in 2009 and got schooled by Roger Ailes for seven years in the arts of broadcasting did he enjoy his breakout moments. Fox's founding ethos, formulated by Ailes and owner Rupert Murdoch, was that an unserved conservative audience existed, ignored by other news networks and most newspapers, and that they could fill it with something akin to what Rush Limbaugh was doing on AM radio. Their formula, which depended on tabloid instincts, was more successful than either imagined. Gone was the politesse that characterized the competition, and in was the two-fisted contention of a street fight. Fox does its best to seek conflict and accentuate it for the camera. It's never going to win a Peabody, but it's what the masses like, and clearly not just conservatives. Liberals and independents who tune in are there for political catechism. Some may be drawn out of curiosity or pause there after stumbling onto that day's hot Fox topic while channel surfing. Fox also appeals to some viewers, raising my hand here, because the network covers sensationalist stories that won't appear on CNN or MSNBC unless the New York Times or Washington Post gets there first. The news can never be divorced from entertainment, and Fox is nothing if not entertaining. 
Some liberals must use it as a sort of political intelligence service, a way to eavesdrop on what their enemies are thinking about. During the Trump administration, the channel was a better conveyor of what the Trump movement was thinking than the Trump White House was. If you're a liberal, you ignore Fox at your own peril. The Nielsen findings also provide sucker for ideological maverick Glenn Greenwald, who almost daily is attacked as a traitor by lefties for his scores of appearances on the network. With the Nielsen report in his hand, Greenwald can now accurately say he appears on Carlson's show to share his wisdom with everybody, not just Republicans, but Democrats and independents who come from the choicest demographic. Carlson's show led among Democrats in the 25 to 50 age group in all cable news for the month measured October and took third among Democrats in total viewership. The rap continued. The Nielsen data serves as a programming lesson to CNN and MSNBC. If those two networks want Fox sized audiences, maybe they should stop thinking less about ideological appeal and more about showmanship. Make the news foxy. Now, that last thought makes absolutely no sense. Maybe he's trying to say maybe they should stop thinking about ideological appeal and more about showmanship, but maybe they should stop thinking less about ideological appeal. He's like, it's, it's got the same effect as a du- double negative. It's saying the opposite of what he clearly means. And I mean, such an excellent writer. I'm surprised he did it. But all of this is hysterical. Okay, so first off, he has no idea what any objective reality looks like and has no ability, therefore, to understand that Fox is the only of the three networks that even edge up to an objectively real world. CNN and MSNBC are complete propaganda. They are almost always simply the opposite of what the truth is. They're not even close. And that is why people are not watching them anymore. It's not because they do too much hard news and people are shifting over to Fox for tabloid style journalism. It could be because people like Tucker Carlson are telling the truth about January 6th, for instance, telling the truth about vaccines way too late, but still doing it. Telling the truth about COVID therapeutics. That probably does attract some viewers. And tabloid style news. CNN spent multiple news cycles pretending that ivermectin is a horse dewormer so that they could run cover for big pharma. And that was completely obvious to everyone who saw it, including the most child brained people in their audience. Now, some of them will take those slogans and go out into the world and repeat them. But that's because they're liars, not because they're dumb enough to believe it. And it's incredible that these sorts of writers who imagine themselves to be elites and by virtue of that be relatively infallible will use pieces like this to cast aspersions on those rubes who watch Fox News and then try to give good excuses about why the people he believes he's aligned with would be watching that stuff rather than the very serious stuff on CNN and MSNBC. And what he's exposing about himself is that not only does he not understand the other side, he doesn't even understand his own side. This is embarrassing, right? The obvious answer why people would stop consuming a product like CNN or MSNBC is that it is not adding anything to their experience. Okay. And it's not just about entertainment because for years, that is exactly what people found entertaining. Listening to people like Rachel Maddow and Don Lemon tell them how stupid everyone else was, how racist and homophobic everyone else was. You're perfect. You're perfect. But everyone else is a bigot. That is the sum total of what CNN and MSNBC do, aside from launder intelligence community narratives into the public sphere by pretending that they're actually news stories. If you pretend to be an objective purveyor of information and you are always wrong all the time, 
always hypocritical and provably always lying, people are going to stop consuming the product. And that's exactly what happened. And of course, he's never going to reach the right answer because reaching the right answer would require enough self-awareness and reflection to understand that it's outlets like Politico and like the cable news networks he's discussing that are the problem. He would have to admit not only that he's wrong about these assumptions, but that actually he is himself the problem. That is never going to happen. And these people must be gaining some sort of awareness that their careers are in great peril at this point. They are being exposed as liars and frauds who are actively working to undermine the good of the American people. Who is going to forgive him? Who is going to want to read Jack Schaefer in Politico, give his media analysis in a year or two years? The answer is no one. The narrative for the Democrat Communist Party is falling apart on all levels. And even with that being true, you still get surprised every now and then by how bad it truly is going. This is from Breitbart yesterday. Black Americans sue New York City for racially discriminatory policy allowing foreign nationals to vote. Black Americans in New York City have filed a lawsuit against the city for giving municipal voting rights to nearly a million foreign nationals. As Breitbart News has chronicled, Democrats on the 51-member New York City Council approved a plan last month that allows for more than 800,000 foreign nationals with green cards, visas, and work permits the opportunity to vote in citywide elections so long as they have resided in the city for at least 30 consecutive days. Now four black Americans and New York City residents Phyllis Coachman, DeRoy Murdoch, Catherine James, and Anthony Gilhise, I hope I'm saying his name right, have filed suit with the help of the Public Interest Legal Foundation. Their lawsuit accuses the city's Board of Elections of violating the 15th Amendment by imposing a racially discriminatory policy that is set to drastically dilute the voting power of American citizens in New York City and specifically of black Americans. All of the relevant indicia demonstrate that a racially discriminatory purpose was a motivating factor in the passage of the foreign citizen voting bill, the lawsuit states. And this is a quotation from the lawsuit. The New York City Council was aware of the discriminatory impact that the foreign citizen voting bill would have on the voting strength of black voters. These concerns were raised by council members. Despite this discriminatory impact and the knowledge that the New York City Council was without legal authority to grant foreign citizens the right to vote, the council moved forward and passed the bill. The lawsuit cites United States Census Bureau data, which shows how the policy will shift voting power from New York City's dwindling black American population toward its booming foreign born population. The sponsors of the bill are aware of this racial composition and passed the bill with the intent to strengthen the power of Hispanic and Asian groups and reduce the power of other racial groups, a PILF news release states. Of the approximately 1 million foreign nationals in New York City, approximately 488,000 are Hispanic and 343,000 are Asian. Councilman Reverend Ruben Diaz had warned that the policy would dilute the votes of the city's citizens while shifting electoral power to foreign nationals with ties to the United Nations, Wall Street, and the global financial system. This is the second lawsuit to drop against the policy. Last month, the New York State Republican Party, naturalized American citizens, and a Democrat city councilman filed a lawsuit against New York City, alleging the policy is in violation of the state's constitution. The case is Coachman versus New York City Board of Elections in the Supreme Court of New York. So would you look at that? The party of slavery, the Confederacy, the Klan, Jim Crow, and urban decay is now being accused of racism. Maybe the switcheroo isn't working as well as they had always planned. Maybe it's not working as well as it has the past 20 years as people are getting to the point where they're like, you know what? Call me racist if you want. I am actually totally fine in my person, understanding that I do not have hate for other people based on any of their unchanging identity characteristics. 
And that's really all you have to understand about yourself. You don't actually have to let people call you racist, especially if you're not racist. But for too long, we just allowed people to do that because it wasn't worth arguing. They're just going to say, oh, well, yeah, that's what a racist would say. You think racists know they're racist? Well, yeah, sometimes they do. But you're right. Other times they're like Democrats and they have no idea that while they make every single thing about race all the time because they say they're saving other races by doing absolutely nothing other than self-glorification. Well, they clearly don't know, but they are racist. I can also say if someone is pretty certain under scrutiny that they're not racist, that they don't have a hateful cell in their body, I'm going to go ahead and accept them at their word. But it is going to be amazing if this ridiculous New York City Council decision is overturned, especially and hopefully on constitutional grounds, because getting foreign nationals the vote is a Democrat Communist Party priority and a global communist priority. They want to create global citizens and they want to create global cities. They don't actually believe that Americans should be in control of America. And I know that that sounds crazy. It's hard to wrap your head around, but they don't care about it at all. Okay, they don't care about our Constitution. They want the world to be governed under one set of rules that apply everywhere. And by everywhere, I mean any time they choose that the rules apply. The rest of the time, the rules don't apply to them. They still apply to everybody else everywhere whenever they choose, but not to them ever. Unless they get on the bad side of the state and then, you know, the rules will begin applying to them all the time. I don't know how much clearer it could possibly be that these people do not care at all about voting rights. If they did, they wouldn't be trying to get foreign citizens the right to vote in our elections. That is exactly what they're doing. Ballot harvesting, mail out voting everywhere to everyone, voting on papers you print out at your own house, voting online. What could be the problem? Voting without voter ID, registering that day without voter ID and then voting. And then they want to remove all the checks on the system. There is no intelligent person in the world who could possibly believe that the Democrat Communist Party cares about voting rights. That is not what their bill is about. That is not what efforts like this are about. You cannot hold the position that the Voting Rights Act that Joe Biden, the fake president, and his party are attempting to push through is a good thing that protects voting rights and still be considered smart or honest. One of those two has to go. Maybe you're stupid enough to believe it, which means you clearly don't know anything about the issue or what impact any of it might have, or you're lying. And of course, the people in positions of power are simply lying. They want to acquire more power. But the child brains who watch MSNBC and CNN, well, they might be both. This story has been out there for a couple of days now, getting reported in various outlets. This is from the Washington Free Beacon. Johns Hopkins study finds COVID lockdowns ineffective at saving lives. And this is one of those truths that was available to everyone for this entire period of COVID mitigation. But it used to be a conspiracy theory. It used to be harmful misinformation, even though lockdowns were never, ever suggested by actual science and never tried anywhere before. A nationwide lockdown had never been tried before the COVID-19 pandemic. This is Philip Caldwell writing for the Free Beacon. A study from researchers at Johns Hopkins University found that lockdowns had, quote, little to no effect on COVID-19 mortality. The researchers conducted a meta-analysis of 24 studies examining government mandates that restrict people's freedoms, including school and business closures, stay-at-home orders, travel bans, and face mask requirements. 
The results of the meta-analysis indicated that lockdowns in the United States and Europe have reduced deaths from COVID-19 by just 0.2%. We find little to no evidence that mandated lockdowns in Europe and the United States had a noticeable effect on COVID-19 mortality rates, the authors of the study wrote. An analysis of studies that focused on just stay-at-home orders found that they were 2.9% effective at reducing mortality. Studies that gathered data on a broad number of government-imposed pandemic measures actually indicated that stay-at-home orders marginally increased COVID deaths. The authors found no evidence of a noticeable effect on COVID mortality from any specific lockdown measure except for business closures, though, quote, the variation in estimates is large and the effect seems related to closing bars, the authors wrote. They found mask mandates may reduce mortality, but declined to form a conclusion on their effectiveness because their meta-analysis looked at only one study <laughs> that examines universal mask mandates. So not really a meta-analysis, is it? <laughs> we, just, we just picked this study. The authors concluded that governments should abandon lockdown measures because of their negligible impact on mortality and the real societal damage they cause. While this meta-analysis concludes that lockdowns have had little to no public health effects, they have imposed enormous economic and social costs where they have been adopted, the researchers wrote. In consequence, lockdown policies are ill-founded and should be rejected as a pandemic policy instrument. The study was published by Johns Hopkins Institute for Applied Economics, Global Health, and the Study of Business Enterprise. One of the study's authors, economics professor Stephen Hankey, is a co-director of the Institute. But let's go to the study and its conclusions. This is the concluding observations section of the Johns Hopkins paper. Public health experts and politicians have, based on forecasts and epidemiological studies, such as that of Imperial College London, that's Neil Ferguson in 2020, who said everybody was going to die and then broke the lockdown measures to go have his extramarital affair across town when everybody else had to stay at home. That great man who was absolutely wrong about absolutely everything. But back to the study. So based on forecasts in the epidemiological studies, they embraced compulsory lockdowns as an effective method for arresting the pandemic. But have these lockdown policies been effective in curbing COVID-19 mortality? This is the main question answered by our meta-analysis. Adopting a systematic search and title-based screening, we identified 1,048 studies published by July 1st, 2020, which potentially look at the effect of lockdowns on mortality rates. To answer our question, we focused on studies that examine the actual impact of lockdowns on COVID-19 mortality rates based on registered cross-sectional mortality data and a counterfactual difference-in-difference approach. Out of the 1,048 studies, 34 met our eligibility criteria. Overall, our meta-analysis fails to confirm that lockdowns have had a large significant effect on mortality rates. Studies examining the relationship between lockdown strictness find that the average lockdown in Europe and the United States only reduced COVID-19 mortality by 0.2% compared to a COVID-19 policy based solely on recommendations. Shelter-in-place orders were also ineffective. They only reduced COVID-19 mortality by 2.9%. Studies looking at specific NPIs, lockdown versus no lockdown, face mask, closing non-essential businesses, border closures, school closures, and limited gatherings also find no broad-based evidence of noticeable effects on COVID-19 mortality. However, closing non-essential businesses seems to have had some effect, reducing COVID-19 mortality by 10.6%, which is likely to be related to the closure of bars. And we should just accept that at this point, right? Just accept that closing down bars reduced mortality by 10%. That doesn't even make sense. Also, masks may reduce COVID-19 mortality, but there is only one study that examines universal mask mandates. So there's only one study about one of the key policies of the global communist regime in response to COVID. The CDC, the WHO, Fauci, the Democrat Communist Party, all love the mask. They still wear the mask all the time. They don't do it correctly, obviously, 
ever. And they refuse to wear the masks when they get around their rich and famous friends, just like Eric Garcetti and Gavin Newsom did last weekend at the football game in Los Angeles, where they were hanging out with magic. Newsom said he only took the mask off for the photo, but was wearing it the rest of the time. And then there were a ton more pictures where he wasn't. Garcetti said, don't worry. I didn't breathe. I held my breath. So it's okay. I didn't know that pretending to hold your breath was an option for not wearing masks. So one of the most important measures they took the entire time, there's one study that the Johns Hopkins group was able to look at. The effect of border closures, school closures, and limited gatherings on COVID-19 mortality yields precision-weighted estimates of negative 0.1%, negative 4.4%, and 1.6% respectively. Lockdowns, compared to no lockdowns, also do not reduce COVID-19 mortality. And I'm going to jump down now to their section on policy implications. In the early stages of a pandemic, before the arrival of vaccines and new treatments, a society can respond in two ways, mandated behavioral changes or voluntary behavioral changes. Our study fails to demonstrate significant positive effects of mandated behavioral changes, lockdowns. This should draw our focus to the role of voluntary behavioral changes. Here, more research is needed to determine how voluntary behavioral changes can be supported. But it should be clear that one important role for government authorities is to provide information so that citizens can voluntarily respond to the pandemic in a way that mitigates their exposure. Finally, allow us to broaden our perspective after presenting our meta-analysis that focuses on the following question. What does the evidence tell us about the effects of lockdowns on mortality? We provide a firm answer to this question. The evidence fails to confirm that lockdowns have a significant effect in reducing COVID-19 mortality. The effect is little to none. The use of lockdowns is a unique feature of the COVID-19 pandemic. Unique. Got that? What would make it unique? Oh, it's never, ever been done before. Lockdowns have not been used to such a large extent during any of the pandemics of the past century. However, lockdowns during the initial phase of the COVID-19 pandemic have had devastating effects. They have contributed to reducing economic activity, raising unemployment, reducing schooling, causing political unrest, contributing to domestic violence and undermining liberal democracy. These costs to society must be compared to the benefits of lockdowns, which our meta-analysis has shown are marginal at best. Such a standard benefit cost calculation leads to a strong conclusion. Lockdowns should be rejected out of hand as a pandemic policy instrument. And honestly, what in the world could have possibly been more obvious? They basically destroyed society to pretend to save one out of every thousand people who gets infected with a virus that basically everyone is going to get infected with. They didn't save lives. They destroyed lives. And their justification for doing this was that it was a new virus. We didn't know about it. Oh, it's so mysterious, this new coronavirus that we created. We just didn't know anything about it except for its entire structure and every single way that it was invented because we created it. And because it's a new virus, we have to treat it differently than all other viruses in the past. And what we're going to need to do is destroy society in every single way possible to usher in the Great Reset. I mean, to save lives. We just ignored as a society the fact that Everything is a trade-off. There was no justification ever for believing that bringing society to a complete halt would not have a downside. But we know how our elites felt about it. They said to themselves and to everyone else, well, that's okay. Just work from home. Don't worry about it. Just grab your laptop. Cuddle up under a blanket on the couch, turn Netflix on, answer your emails throughout the day whenever they might arise. And, you know, if you're late or you just don't do something, it's not a big deal. Don't you know how special you are?
This is a very hard time for everybody. If you don't get your work done, just tell your boss, hey, you know, I'm just really having a tough day with this whole pandemic thing. I can't do my job today. So I'm going to finish my Netflix show. Uber Eats is on the way. Going to eat that. I've got my blanket. And, you know, two weeks to slow the spread or two months or two years. Not a problem. I'll just work from home. They told that to the entire society. Everybody could just stop what they were doing and work from home indefinitely. And businesses went under. Black businesses went under. We had lost something like 40% of small businesses owned by black Americans in the first few months of lockdown. Drug abuse, domestic abuse, child abuse, all skyrocketed. Alcohol abuse, depression, suicide. And in place of those small businesses, we had essential businesses. Your little coffee shop can't be open. Your little cafe can't be open. But don't worry. We've got the grocery store for you. We've got essential workers there, masked up, ready to protect you. And we've got Starbucks and McDonald's. So it's no big deal that all these people are unemployed now. We'll give them unemployment for a few months. And then, yeah, they're going to be unemployed after that and not have any money. But as long as they do what we tell them for the rest of their lives when it comes to injecting experimental substances into their body, well, at some point, we might be able to deliver them what we're going to call universal basic income. It's not going to be enough to live on, not the way you lived before. But, you know, you can live in public housing, small place, yes, fine. But we'll give you like $1,000 a month and that should cover things up, right? I mean, you won't have to work, which is what everybody wants to do. I mean, all the people in our liberal bubble, they don't want to work. That's why they're so happy to be working from home. And we know what they do isn't really work. They're just on their computer, reading about celebrities, checking their Instagram, and responding to emails. Now, also on the subject of the old coronavirus, this is from today in the Epic Times. FDA document on Moderna vaccine approval removed from agency's website. A Food and Drug Administration document explaining why the agency approved Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine was removed from the agency's website overnight. The summary basis for regulatory action gave more details on how regulators reached the approval decision and included references to an unpublished analysis that found the rates of post-vaccination heart inflammation were higher than any U.S. agency had found before. Oops. After the Epoch Times reviewed the document and sent questions about it to FDA spokespersons, it disappeared from the agency's website. We are aware of the issue and hope to have the document reposted as soon as possible, a spokesperson told the Epic Times in an email on Thursday. Reached by phone and asked for more details about the issue, the spokesperson said, I reached out to the website, people. I don't really have any more information to tell you. So it's just a glitch. The Epoch Times has submitted Freedom of Information Act requests for the document and several unpublished analyses referenced in it, including the FDA meta-analysis. Barbara Lowe Fisher, president of the National Vaccine Information Center, a nonprofit that advocates for informed consent, told the Epoch Times in an email that the public has the right to review the evidence FDA is using to license new mRNA vaccines as safe and effective. Lack of transparency only fosters distrust in government agencies charged with protecting the public health. FDA should immediately release all information related to the incidence of myocarditis and other serious adverse events following mRNA COVID-19 vaccinations. Whether that information has been provided to the agency by vaccine manufacturers or discovered through in-house analyses of additional data collected by federal officials, she added. The FDA meta-analysis examined data of four healthcare claims databases and estimated that among males aged 18 to 25, the rate of myocarditis following Moderna's primary series was 148 per million males vaccinated. 
So that basically means that they have a better chance of getting myocarditis from the vaccine than they do from dying of COVID. That figure is higher than other government estimates, including a Center for Disease Control and Prevention analysis of reports submitted to the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. The analysis found about 10.7 cases per million males aged 18 to 24 who got Moderna's first shot and 56 cases per million among those who received Moderna's second shot. Man, that's interesting that the CDC's own data suggests that the more shots you get of the mRNA vaccines, the higher the rates of myocarditis go. Seems like they might want to tell somebody about that if it's in their data. Myocarditis is one type of heart inflammation that people who receive vaccines built on messenger RNA have experienced at higher than expected rates. It also occurs among people who contract the CCP virus, which causes COVID-19. Moderna's shot, a type of mRNA vaccine, is administered in a two-dose primary series. The doses are administered about a month apart. The FDA approved Moderna's vaccine on January 31st without convening its expert vaccine advisory panel, a growing trend for the agency. You got that? Don't even have the panel. Don't show the public the data. They just say, hey, yeah, no, we're good now. Let's go ahead. And on February 15th, they will very likely engage the same process to give emergency use approval for Pfizer's shot for children six months old to five years old even though the most recent data that we've heard about that Pfizer shot says that it doesn't work for kids. And by the way, that's the best thing you can say about it. I'm not trying to minimize how dangerous this shot is for children. The CDC's Vaccine Advisory Committee is scheduled to meet Friday to go over data on the jab. Oh, and then, then we'll have the trustworthy information that we need. Researchers in the UK found last month that men under 40 were much more likely and females under 40 were more likely to suffer from heart inflammation after Moderna's second shot than from COVID-19 itself. It is incredible. Just like lockdowns, the vaccines have the potential to cause massive widespread problems for little or no benefit. Now, the big tech stocks continue to free fall, and it's not just Twitter anymore. This is from the Daily Mail today. Facebook loses users for the first time ever. Shares plummet 20%, wiping $200 billion off the value of parent firm Meta as it revealed 500,000 fewer daily logins and declining profits. Zuckerberg's personal wealth takes a $29 billion hit. This is Natasha Anderson in Daily Mail. Facebook lost daily users for the first time in its 18-year history in the final quarter of 2021, which CEO Mark Zuckerberg believes was caused by the TikTok boom. TikTok's been out forever. The social media giant's devastating earnings report on Wednesday sent Facebook shares plunging more than 20%, wiping more than $200 billion off the company's market cap and erasing $29 billion from Zuckerberg's net worth. Facebook reported a drop of nearly 500,000 in daily logins during the last three months of 2021. People have a lot of choices for how they want to spend their time, and apps like TikTok are growing very quickly, Zuckerberg said during an earnings call Wednesday, according to the Washington Post. I mean, that is just groveling nonsense. Perhaps people just don't like to be tracked and censored anymore, Mark. Zuckerberg reiterated that Meta, the company that owns Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp is pushing hard to develop its own short-form video reels in an effort to compete with TikTok. This is why our focus on reels is so important over the long term, he added. Facebook, which now only has 1.93 billion users logging in each day, also saw its shares plunge more than 20% in extended trading on Wednesday after unexpectedly heavy spending on its metaverse project led to a rare decline in its fourth quarter profit. Now, I've talked about the metaverse a few times. All of this sounds like complete and utter bullshit to me. You have to make the real world so bad for people to want to spend their time in the metaverse. And they are making the real world really, really bad for the vast majority of people. But that is not going to continue forever. 
All right. When the people are fully awake and rise up, all of this stuff is going to be wiped away. People are not going to want to go to the metaverse. People are buying pretend real estate in the metaverse right now. It's like the old joke, like pretending that you're going to sell someone the Brooklyn Bridge. They're really selling bridges and spaceships and houses in a pretend universe. How dumb are people? Honestly, we're going into the future, man. You just don't understand it. Yeah. Okay. Metasot stock fall 22.6% to 249.90 in after hours trading, wiping about $200 billion off the company's market value. The company heavily invested in its reality lab segment, which includes its virtual reality headsets and augmented reality technology during the final quarter of 2021, accounting for much of the profit decline. Zuckerberg, who is worth approximately $107 billion, held more than 398 million shares of Meta at the end of 2020, according to Investopedia. Based on his reported holdings, the CEO personally experienced a more than $29 billion loss when the company's stock fell Wednesday. And the article goes on, but you get the picture. Now, finally, today would have been Bo Biden's birthday, and Joe is trying to exploit that for sympathy because that is how he continues on in politics, by exploiting his family tragedies. But my friend Garrett Ziegler posted an article about a case that Bo Biden handled when he was the attorney general of Delaware. This is from Delaware Online on April 3rd of 2014. Bo Biden defends handling of DuPont Air sex case. The child sexual abuse case against a DuPont family heir who raped his young daughter, was weak, and prosecutors offered an appropriate plea bargain that spared him prison while convicting him of a felony sex crime, Attorney General Bo Biden said Thursday. This was not a strong case, and a loss at trial was a distinct possibility, Biden wrote in a letter submitted to the News Journal. Biden also defended Superior Court Judge Jan Jordan, who noted in her sentencing order that the wealthy father, quote, will not fare well, end quote, in prison. Biden said the judge, quote, exercised sound discretion based solely on the merits of the case before her and doesn't allow a defendant's, quote, wealth or social status to influence her decisions. Thank goodness Bo Biden was there to stand up for this poor judge who, you know, really wanted to convict this child rapist, but she was just so worried about how he would do in prison because he was rich. Jordan has been criticized and has been the subject of threats because she gave Robert H. Richards IV probation after he admitted to fourth-degree rape of his daughter. Jordan's 2009 ruling followed recommendations from Biden's office. Much of the ire against Jordan stems from her notation in her sentencing order about Richard's fitness for prison, which she listed as a mitigating factor. She also noted as mitigating factors impacting the sentence that Richard's, quote, has significant treatment needs that must be met and has, quote, strong family support. Richards, who turned 48 Thursday, is the great grandson of DuPont family patriarch Irene or Irene DuPont and the son of Robert H. Richards III, a retired partner in the Richards, Layton and Finger law firm. His case gained publicity last month when his ex-wife, Tracy, filed a lawsuit seeking damages for the rape of his daughter from ages three to five and accusing him of admitting to sexually abusing his toddler son. The lawsuit states the admissions about his son came while he was on probation and were included in reports submitted to the judge. Police investigated claims about the boy in 2010 and did not file charges, but said the investigation is reopened in the wake of allegations in the lawsuit. Lawyers for Tracy Richards, who identified her children in the lawsuit, said they cannot discuss the criminal case, including whether her daughter was prepared to testify, the mother's knowledge or feelings about the plea deal, and whether she attended the sentencing. The mother is prohibited from commenting because of limitations put in place this week by the judge handling the case, her lawyers said. 
They have, for the time being, stopped Tracy from responding to reports like A.G. Biden's, said Rianne Warner, one of Tracy Richards' attorneys, and they have stopped her lawyers and anyone working with them from commenting. Biden would not agree to an interview, but broke his two-week silence about the child sex case in the letter to the News Journal. He defended fellow Democrat Jordan, who last year sought an appointment to the state's highest court and for the first time provided details about why his office gave Richards a plea bargain with a recommendation of probation. Biden's office initially indicted Richards on two counts of second-degree rape, charges that carried a minimum 20 years in prison. The indictment said the abuse started when his daughter was about three and a half and ended less than a couple of months before she turned five. The second term attorney general, who often touts his prosecution and imprisonment of child predators and those who view child pornography, is up for reelection in November. Biden wrote that the prosecutor, Renee Hrivnak, whom he did not name in his letter, cut the deal to ensure that Richards was convicted as a child sex offender. Hrivnak Recommended probation for Richards, something Chief Deputy Attorney General Ian R. McConnell said last week he would have preferred she not have done. He said, quote, it would have been my hope that she would have asked for open sentencing. Biden defended how the case was handled. The girl was the only eyewitness besides Richards who did not agree to be interviewed by police. Biden wrote there was no medical or forensic evidence. Biden wrote. To corroborate the child's account to the Children's Advocacy Center at Alfred I. DuPont Hospital for Children in Rockland, which has experts who interview children in abuse cases. The defendant did not make a statement to police, although he made an ambiguous apology to the victim's mother. A conviction would have required 12 jurors to find unanimously beyond a reasonable doubt that the crime had occurred, Biden wrote. Richard's daughter gave consistent accounts about his abuse, according to the arrest warrant filed by Newcastle County Police Detective Joanna Burton. First, she told her grandmother, who reported to the state's Division of Family Services hotline that the girl, in graphic terms, said her father digitally penetrated her, the warrant said. Her grandmother, Donna Berg, told police she took the girl into the bathroom and asked where he touched her. The grandmother said the girl repeated her claim and said, Daddy said it was our little secret, and later said, I don't want my daddy touching me anymore, the warrant said. The arrest warrant also stated that Richard's wife told the officer she confronted her husband, whom she was still married to at the time. He said the penetration of his daughter, quote, was an accident and he would never do it again, end quote, the warrant said. At the Children's Advocacy Center, the girl told the child specialist who interviewed her that her father was, quote, never going to come back home because, again, in graphic terms, her father digitally penetrated her two times, the warrant said. She told the interviewer that she told her father it hurt and he apologized, the warrant said. According to the lawsuit filed by his ex-wife, Richard said during a polygraph taken while on probation that he abused his daughter at least four times. The lawsuit also said the girl told her pediatrician about his father's penetration of her. Instead of taking the case to trial, though, Biden's office offered Richards a plea to fourth degree rape, which carries no mandatory prison time and has a range of zero to 30 months under state sentencing guidelines. Biden noted the guidelines are zero to 22 months for defendants who accept responsibility. Richards defense attorney at the time, Eugene J. Moore Jr., recently called the offer, quote, more than reasonable. In recognition of the weakness of the case, the assigned prosecutor offered a plea and sentence recommendation that guaranteed the defendant would be required to register as a sex offender, participate in court-ordered sex offender rehabilitation therapy, and to have no contact with the victim and any other child under the age of 16, Biden wrote. A loss at trial would have rendered any of these restrictions impossible. So you got to understand, Bo Biden was actually being heroic and keeping this man away from children when he let him off with basically a slap on the wrist, relatively speaking. It wasn't enough that the father had said during a polygraph that he abused his daughter at least four times. That, <laughs> that's not good hard evidence in the eyes of Bo Biden. Must have got that from his dad. 
The perils of a trial in child rape cases involving very young children can be prohibitive, Biden wrote, noting that such victims often provide differing accounts of the abuse and are, quote, on the cusp of being capable of relating an event in detail. The younger the child, the less detailed the account is going to be, end quote. Without physical evidence, quote, the sum total of the evidence is often the word of the child against the word of the alleged perpetrator. The child, quote, must testify in a sterile courtroom in a room full of strangers, except it's not her word against his word. It's her word and his word against Bo Biden's opinion. Biden added that before a child can even testify, a judge must deem them competent and decide they know, quote, the difference between right and wrong. Children who clear that threshold then face, quote, the additional trauma by having to recount the abuse in front of the very person who committed it, usually several months to a year after the crime. Jordan's sentence of eight years in prison, suspended for eight years of probation, plus treatment and no contact with children under 16, quote, was made after careful deliberation with due regard of all the circumstances. And that's a quote from Biden. Delaware public defender Brendan O'Neill and defense attorney Thomas Foley also wrote a letter defending Jordan on behalf of the Delaware Association of Criminal Defense Attorneys. The lawyer said Jordan's sentence was a normal outcome for a fourth degree rape conviction. Suspending jail time for probation is frequently the sentence imposed by all of the judges on the Superior Court for first time offenders convicted of offenses of this nature, the defense lawyers wrote. O'Neill noted in an interview last week that he had not seen a judge note as a, quote, reason not to send someone to jail, a concern, as Jordan did in Richard's case, that the criminal would not fare well in prison, even though he and his deputies have often argued that a defendant was too ill or frail for prison. In the letter Thursday that he and Foley wrote, they questioned why the News Journal did not state in earlier stories that Biden's office, quote, was required to confer with the victim's family before extending the plea offer that resolved the case. The letter also noted that a pre-sentence report, which has not been released publicly, would have recorded whether the victim's family had objections to the resolution negotiated by the prosecution. Joseph Grubb, chief Newcastle County prosecutor, said the case file shows that Hrivnak discussed the plea offer of fourth degree rape with Tracy Richards on June 8, 2008, about three weeks before the plea was entered. Grubb said the file reflects how Tracy Richards felt about the deal, but he would not disclose the information because Richards has not commented publicly because she's not allowed to. Moore said he did not think Tracy Richards appeared at the sentencing and Grubb said the file does not reveal whether she was notified or appeared. Grubb said victims in sex crimes cases are notified by mail and phone about the sentencing and invited to attend and address the judge or have the prosecutor read a letter from them to the court. So who is the grossest Biden? Is it Joe? Is it Bo? Or is it Hunter? I'm starting to feel like Hunter may come out looking better than the other two. And that is really saying something. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting, or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. 
I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm Your Moderator. The Substack is I'mYourModerator.substack.com and the merch site is CancelCouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the range. It's high noon. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'mYourModerator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon, down on the range. It's hell!